night. Um, we, we, we finish a section whereas the Apostle Paul has been taking the liberty to remind the readers about the sovereignty of God. Um, and, 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 and all of this, chapters 9, 10, and 11, have to do with the nation of Israel. And it's kind of interesting how he does this as we've been going through the book of Romans, that up to chapter 8, he has just been building this case of how all are guilty under heaven. Every person is guilty. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He came to that conclusion, and then he began to to talk to us about being justified by faith. He talked to to us about being regenerated in this faith. He talked to, to us about this sanctification that we have in our faith and and just he's just been building 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 and then we get to like chapter 8 as i've been talking about it was the the apex of this uh book and he's just talking about the love of christ and how there is no condemnation no condemnation and you know i was just reminding somebody today because we uh we're talking and we use that scripture eight twenty eight. all things work together for the good to those who uh, are are the called and you know you guys know how it goes I'm jacking it all up but be that as it may okay I'll go to it jeez for we know that all things work together for good for those who are, who love God to those who are called according to the purpose and and if you remember that was several weeks ago that we covered that that I was sharing that if we truly believe that scripture just that one verse alone we would never worry about a single thing in our life ever, ever, you know, the fact that that chapter talks about no condemnation, why, because he, he has paid the price, he has done it all, we don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law, because he did it, in the flesh he did it, and so again, he's just building and building and building and building, and then we get to chapters 9, 10, 11, and it's almost like this big old parentheses that takes place here, but it's a vital part because he's been writing to these Jews or the, the, the Christians in Rome, but they're, they're made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so, again, he, he's just, um, he's just going to, he's been focusing on the sovereignty of God and the nation of Israel. Now, if I were a betting man, and I am not a betting man, but if I were, I would put everything I have, all that I have or ever will have, on the survivability of the nation of Israel. I would put everything. If if you're a betting man, you shouldn't be, but if you are, bet all towards Israel. Because I, I, I wouldn't be able to say that about any other nation that they will survive. But Israel, I can. I couldn't even say that about our nation, that we will survive. Even though we started off as a Christian nation, um, I, I, I wouldn't put everything I have or all my stock in that sense in, in the United States of America because it is not guaranteed to succeed or to continue forever. Even though we're like one of the youngest nations, we have become a superpower in this world in 230 some years where other nations have been around for thousands of years. And so there's something to be said about this nation, but you know what? We're not guaranteed that we will survive. (laughs) But I can tell you what, Israel will survive. 
Israel has to survive because it is guaranteed to make it through the tribulation time, the tribulation period. It is guaranteed to make it through that and into the millennial kingdom that is coming. When, when, when we read Revelation and you know all the stuff that goes on in there and it gets pretty like gory and crazy. And yet the nation of Israel, portions of it <laughs> remain. And there will be people, even through all the, the stuff that goes on in the great tribulation, that will make it into the millennial kingdom. I, I think that's fascinating because when you're reading about all the stuff that's happened, you're going, how could anybody survive? Yes, there will. <laughs> there will be people that survive that enter into the millennial kingdom. And so no matter what happens to the nation of Israel, good or bad, throughout these years, or what's happened in the history, what will happen in the future, there will be a portion of it that survives. And so Romans 11 is a chapter that proves that God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's not done with it. We're not to apply this chapter to the church. Okay, We need to understand that as we're going through this chapter. Paul is literally talking about the future of Israel, the nation of Israel, the, the, the literal nation of Israel, as a, as a, as a people group, as, 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 as a group, as the Jews. And so this, this chapter pertains to the nation of Israel. Oh, we're going to talk about the Gentiles in it, but, but we're, not, we're not going to be in that area because it's talking about the survivability and what the future holds for the nation of Israel. And so we need to keep that in mind. We're going to do the whole chapter, so I'm going to get on with it. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 12 for right now. It says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? Who he pleaded, how he pleaded with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine respond, uh, divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. What then, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David said, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, 
they have stumbled, that they should fall. No, you, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches to the Gentile, uh, to the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Stop right there for a minute. Going back to verse 1 where he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I'm sure that the Apostle Paul, as he traveled around, made his way preaching in different cities and different places where there was both Jew and Gentile. And you know that it was his custom to go into the synagogues always whenever he went to a town and preach to the Jews first. And then when they rejected him, he would go to the Gentiles. And I'm sure because he hung out with a lot of Gentiles and he had people that were Gentiles hanging around with him always and following him and being his travel partners, I'm sure that as he went around preaching, the Jews were, or people were constantly asking him about the Jews. And if God had done away with the Jews, because there were so many Gentiles coming into the body of Christ, even though it had started off mainly with the Jews, there was a lot of Gentiles that were being saved and coming into the kingdom. And so Paul ends up ministering to the Gentiles and he even says in this chapter that he magnifies that office or that ministry because he was sent to them as well. But he emphatically says as they ask him, so has God done away with them? He says, certainly not. By no means. That is unthinkable. Perish the thought. God forbid, basically, he says. No. He has not been done, done away with them. He hasn't done that at all. It would be unthinkable for God to do that. And he points to himself in this. He says, how is it if God's done with the Jews, I am a Jew. If anybody was a Jew, I am, is what he's saying. I am an Israelite. I am of the seed of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. We've known in other portions of Scripture where he gives us his pedigree of who he is. And if God is done with the Jews, then what is he doing working with me, Paul is saying. So there's no way he could be done with the Jews. And so he goes on to verse 2 where he says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Once again, we see the sovereignty of God. From eternity past, he had already chosen the nation of Israel. He he had chosen them to be his people. They were a chosen people. And so there was no way that he could cast them out. Not once he has chosen them. Again, God does the choosing. I don't know how he does that, but he chose this nation to be his people. And God had not rejected them nor disowned them. Even though they have been set aside. They haven't been cast away like we would cast away something and throw it in the trash. They've just been set aside. That's what the nation of Israel has, 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 that's happened to them. They've been set aside for a time in this church age that we are in right now. He has never, or they have never stopped being his people. And as I was thinking about, about this, I was thinking about the prodigal son in that story of the lost son. 
where the, the kid wants to go do his own thing and he leaves for a long time. But the dad was always his dad, even though he went away and was doing his own thing. Because Israel so often turned their backs on God and they went out and did their, their, their thing, but he never stopped being their God. And he could never disown them in that way. If you have kids and, and your kids have gone off the deep end, you may have been disappointed with them, but you, they never stopped being your kid. You may have even said, well, I disown you. But in reality, you couldn't. You really couldn't. They will always be your kid. They're your blood. And so it doesn't matter what they do. They are always yours. And this is the way God feels about this nation Israel. They belong to him. And throughout the, the Israel's history, they have rejected. They have discerned God even to this present day, today. As Paul was reading or writing, but today as well, so many have rejected God. It is believed that most of the people, that most of the Jews in Israel even are agnostic or atheists. They continue to turn their backs on God. But he is still for them. <laughs> oh, he lets them pay the price for their disobedience and their rebellion, but he never stops being their God. And Paul is getting that across to them. He hasn't cast them away. And then he gives them the example of Elijah. In his day, the whole nation of Israel seemed to be against God in the, in the days of Elijah. They had come against the people of God, the prophets of God, and himself and others. When he says here, hey, don't you remember how, how Elijah, how he pleaded with God against Israel? It wasn't that the other people were coming against, against Israel. His own people were coming against Israel. They were serving other gods. And, and, and he pleaded to God against Israel because they were coming after him. They were serving Baal. They, 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 they were all in for him. And yet... He's praying against them because they were the ones that were coming against the prophets of Israel. He felt like the lone prophet all by himself. Because at the time that, that, that he's kind of talking about this is when King Ahab, again, a king of Israel, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were out to kill him. Well, mostly Jezebel. She was wicked. He had just executed 450 prophets of Baal who were her prophets, who were the people that she, or the God that she was serving at the time. And there was that big old challenge, if you remember that big old challenge, and he won. And as soon as he won, man, he had all the guys kind of rounded up and he killed all of them. They killed all of them. And so Jezebel said, by tomorrow, if, if something doesn't happen to me, I will kill you. You will be like dead like they are. And what does he do? He runs like a little girl. He takes off. He is so scared of this woman Jezebel. He's like, how wicked was she? He just stood up to 450 prophets of Baal, Baal, or whatever his name is, Baal or Baal. And yet this woman sends him flying. And he felt like he was the only one left. There's no one else, God. There's no one else. And now they're out to kill me. And if they kill me, there's no more prophets. 
That's the way he was feeling. As a matter of fact, when he was on the run, he even told God, just take my own life. Just take my life, God. Not even worthy to live anymore. And yet God told him that he had reserved for himself 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. He had reserved a certain amount and said, there's way more. You may not know who they are, but I have them all around. And again, it goes back to, it didn't matter if everybody was against Israel, there was at least 7,000 who would move on. They were reserved for God's work. They were set aside. He uses the word in verse 5, a remnant. He says, even, even so then, uh, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The word remnant means a remainder. That which is left. God told Elijah that he had a reserve, a stash, if you will, of prophets who had not bowed down. And you see, there will always be, there has always been, and there will always be a remnant of God. Always. doesn't matter what happens to Israel. There will always be a remnant of God. I want to read to you a note that I have in my Bible down here. It's, a, it, it, it's about remnant, uh, the, the, the summary in my Bible about remnant. It says, in the history of Israel, a remnant may be uh, discerned, a spiritual, uh, a spiritual Israel within the nation of Israel. In Elijah's time, 7,000 had not bowed the knee to Baal. In, in Isaiah's time, Israel had been reduced to only a very small remnant in Isaiah 1.9. For those for whose sake God uh, still holds back from destroying the nation. During the captivity, a remnant appeared in the Jews like Esther, Mordecai, Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. At the end of the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, it was a remnant that returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. At the advent of our Lord, John the Baptist, Simeon, and Anna, and those who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem were a remnant. During the church age, the remnant is composed of believing Jews. But an important aspect of the remnant is prophetic. During the great tribulation, a remnant out of all Israel will turn to Jesus as Messiah, the sealed Israelites of Revelation 7, 3 through 8. It is inferred by many students of Scripture that the great multitude of Gentiles in Revelation 7, 9 will be saved by the witness of 144,000 in verses uh, 3 and, and 8 in chapter 7. Some will go under, uh, undergo martyr, uh, martyrism, be martyred, martyrdom, and some will be spared to enter into the millennial kingdom. And so once again, there will always, always be a remnant in Israel. God has promised that. And so we, he, they are guaranteed to make it into the millennial age and nobody else is, is guaranteed that. And then he says that, that, that this remnant is according to the election of grace. The fact that God would show any kind of kindness, gentleness, mercy, 
love, and on and on. The fact that he would do that to anybody is pure grace because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody deserves God's kindness. And yet, in his sovereignty, he chose certain people out of the nation of Israel and even in the Gentiles, those who are in the church. He has chosen certain people and none of us deserve that kind of being chosen. And yet, we, we, I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago that anything that, that is re, in regards to election or being chosen is pure grace that God would show on anyone. It is beyond grace if, if, that, if that is possible because none of us deserve to be chosen. And yet He chooses us beyond, before the foundation of the world, it says. And He is the one that knows that. And to me, that's just Unbelievable. Because there is no way that anybody could work to be chosen or elected. It, it just can't happen. It's the sovereignty of God that shows His grace. When you read verse 6 there, it says, For if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer works. Try reading that ten times. You can't work for it. It's pure grace. His sovereignty, his election is pure grace. And then verses 12 through, uh, or verses 7 through 12, he says, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. What, what, what Paul is explaining here is that the nation of Israel is temporarily set aside, but it is not cast away permanently. It's only for a time, and it's only a few that, that, that will come back to him. You know how much I love the, the Amplified, and, and I want to read verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and, uh, through 11, or 11 and 12 through the Amplified. We, we've read it once, we've read through it, but I want you to kind of grasp it here if you can. Because again, he says that Israel as a whole has not obtained what it seeked. It seeked righteousness um, in, in God uh, through the law, but it couldn't do that. But the elect, a small portion, will obtain it. Well, let me read it in the Amplified. It says, What then shall we conclude? Israel as a whole failed to obtain what it sought, God's favor by, by obedience to the law. Only the elect, those chosen few, obtained it, while the rest of them became callously indifferent, blinded, hardened, and made insensible to it. Verse 8, as it is written, God has given them a spirit, an attitude of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, that has continued down to this very day. Verse 9, and David said... Let their tables, their feasting, banqueting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a just retribution, rebounding like a boomerang upon them. Let their eyes, verse 10, be dark and dim so that they cannot see and make them bend their backs, stooping beneath their burden forever. Verse 11. So I ask, have they stumbled so that they so that to fall, to be utterly spiritually ruined irretrievably, by no means. But through their false step and transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles 
so as to arouse Israel to see and feel what is what they forfeited and so to come to make them jealous. Verse 12. Now, if their stumbling, their lapse, their transgression has so enriched the world at large and if Israel's failures means such riches for the Gentiles, think what that enrichment and greater advantage will follow their full reinstatement. In the sovereignty of God, he knew what Israel would do, and yet he chose them. He knew that as a whole, they would turn their back on him. But he knew that there would always be a remnant in Israel. And so as a whole, they were blinded. They became calloused. They couldn't feel anymore. And they turned their backs on God. And yet God still loves the nation of Israel, even though they've become callous, even though they've become indifferent to all of this. It says that God even gave them this attitude, this spirit of stupor, to where they can't figure it out. And it's like, okay, why does God do that? I don't know, but He does it. He gives them that stupor. They can't, they, they, it seems like, well, God, Lord, why would you make them, like, why would you judge them if they can't even figure it out? See, that, that's again, when we start dealing with the sovereignty of God, it's like, if you try to figure it out, it's going to blow your mind. It's one of those things, it's like, he's just God, and he, he's sovereign, and you're not, and I'm not. And yet, he knows that the nation of Israel will turn. And yet, the, 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 the question here is, is there stumbling, stumbling forever? He says, no, not at all. They, they've stumbled, but it's not forever. As a nation, they will probably not all turn to Christ. But there will be a remnant that does. And again, I don't quite understand it. But there is. There's a remnant. Right now, even to this day, their eyes are dimmed. They're darkened. When David talks about their table becoming a snare and a trap, man, that was, that was a time of feasting. It's like, no, there will be judgment instead. Israel has stumbled, but not to the point that is beyond recovery in that sense. God will use this to save the Gentiles. And here's where we get to feel like, whoa, if they wouldn't have gone through what they've gone through, then it wouldn't have been open for the Gentiles as a whole. And yet through the Old Testament, and we've read through it in the last couple of weeks, that God had already invited the Gentiles to come in through the OT. He mentioned it time and time again. And yet the, the Jews, they thought that they were way up here and they felt like, man, He is our God and nobody else should be coming in. And yet they were supposed to go to the Gentiles and they never did. They wouldn't allow the Gentiles to come in. They didn't like them. And yet because of their stumbling, the door has been opened to the Gentiles. And it is to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Can you imagine that? To provoke them to jealousy, to where they might feel like, man, why do you guys worship in spirit and truth? Why is there so much joy with you? You know, I was thinking of these tours of, of all these Christians that go over to Israel. And I'm sure they love it because they're making money off of them. 
But the fact that they see all these Christians and they're so in love with Jesus, they're so excited about their being in that in that the Holy Land and stuff. And I'm wondering if the Jews ever look at these guys going, why are you guys so happy about this stuff? You know, maybe because they're so callous, they live it. They're they're living there. It's like oh, whatever the Holy Land. Just give me your money, type stuff. It's all tourist thing for them. But I wonder if, if any of these Jews ever feel like, why do you guys feel so happy about this Jesus thing? Why do you guys go to these ancient landmarks from the Old Testament that we're supposed to be excited about, but you guys get way more excited? Man, it's like God, God wants to provoke them to jealousy. A few months ago, kind of in that little vein, um, I provoked my grandson to jealousy. He had come over and he was in a foul little mood. He's only two years old. But man, they're little sinners already. <laughs> and he's kind of in a foul mood. And I do this little song that I play with him and I put him on my, on my leg and I go ding, 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 ding. And so it's like, come here, Zeke, listen. He's like, mm. he's looking at me. So I grab Elena, who just turned one, by the way, today. Um, I grabbed her and I put her on her and I started doing the little ding dee dee ding dee song, you know, ding dee dee ding. And, and I could see him over on the side over here and I knew, I, I knew what I was going to do to him. He was going to be jealous and he wanted the ding dee dee ding dee thing. <laughs> he wanted it bad because all of a sudden he's, he's looking and now he's starting to crack a little smile and I'm like trying to ignore him. But I am provoking him to jealousy. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing. Because again, it's like, I love you so much, but you're in a foul mood right now, and I am going to provoke you to love me. <laughs> you know, I am going to make you love me in this little dingy dingy song. Because I know you like it. But you don't even understand how joyous that's going to be when you're on my, on my leg there. <laughs> that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing to the nation of Israel, even through us, the Gentiles, as a whole. Provoking them to anger. Or to jealousy, not to anger. We don't want to provoke them to anger. We want to provoke them to jealousy. And it's interesting because he says, man, if their fall is the riches of the world and their failure is the riches of the Gentiles, then what would it look like if they come back and they are fulfilled? What a joyous time. What what an amazing time when they get reinstated. Verses 13 through 32. It says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my, my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. But if they're casting, they're cast away. But if they're being cast away is a reconciling of the world. What will their acceptance be but life from or but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree or shoot, were grafted in among them, 
and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not supply the root, but the root supplies you or supports you. And you will say then, branches were cut off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or for if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is a wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the elect, they are beloved uh, for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For as, we, as you were, once were disobedient to God, yet now, have now obtained mercy through their obedient, disobedience. Even so, these also have been made disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has commanded them all to disobedience, committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Paul, going back to verse 13, where he says that, for I speak to you Jew or to your Gentiles, although he was writing to the Rome, the Christians in Rome, they were made up of Jews and Gentiles, and it almost seems like they even though they were both one in Christ, they hadn't forgotten their past. They knew that they were still Gentiles. Those guys knew that they were still Jews, and it kind of seems like they still understood or, or had some hang ups about where they came from. And he knew that they all had questions about what he had been addressing. He was just setting things straight here in this chapter. He reminds them of how God had called him to be a minister to the Gentiles. He wasn't boasting of his office or his ministry. The term, I magnify my ministry, here it means that he made much of it. He saw the importance of it. 
to be able not only to minister to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, and he loved it. He knew what the scripture said, that, that the gospel was going out to the Gentiles, and he was fulfilling that ministry because he knew that God would use his life and his ministry to provoke the Jews. And, and Paul had made himself all things to all men, as we see in 1 Corinthians, that by all means he might save some. But he wasn't above provoking his own people to jealousy if he could save some of them. He, he, he wasn't above going to the Gentiles and kind of almost throwing it in their face to say, look, at God has opened the doors for these people who are not a people. He's opened the doors for them. That they might want to come to Christ. And some did. A lot of, a lot of them didn't. It says, for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, when, when you see the prodigal son, the father tells the oldest son when he comes back, he says he once was dead, but now he's alive. See, there was a joy that came to the father when his son returned. It, to him, he, he, he was like he had been dead, but now there was life in him. And the prophet Isaiah prophesies that, that their dead shall live in Isaiah 26, 19. Speaking of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel prophesied about the valley of the dry bones that they would come back to life again. In, in Ezekiel 37, this is what Isaiah, uh, Hosea says. Hosea 6, 1 through 3. Three, you can write it down. It says, "Come and let us return to our to the Lord. He has, for He has torn, but He will heal us. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, we He will revive us. On the third day, He will rise, uh, raise us up, that we may live in His sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord." His going forth is established as in the, as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain on the earth. You see, it had been prophesied that Israel would have life again, that they would come back from the dead. And he, he, he kind of quotes that here. He says, man, if, if they return, it's, it, it's like them coming back from the dead. It, it was that important. The, the, references, the reference in verse 16 about the first fruit and the lump and, 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 and the, the, the root. Here, it's referring to, to Numbers chapter 15 where, where it talked about the part of the dough that was offered up to the Lord. The first part, it, was, it symbolized giving him that first portion, the first fruits, that the rest of it, the entire uh, lump would belong to him. And the same idea was involved in the, the Feast of First Fruits when the priests offered a, 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 the bundles of wheat to, to the Lord as a token that, uh, of the entire harvest, that it would be His. The, the, the basic idea is that when God accepts part, He sanctifies the whole, the rest of it. And applying this to the history of, of Israel that we've kind of been looking at, we can understand Paul's argument here that God accepted the founder 
which was Abraham. And in so doing, he set apart his descendants because of Abraham. That, that the first lump was holy and so the rest would be holy. And so he accepted the patriarchs like Isaac and Jacob. In spite of their sin and their failings that they had, he still accepted him. Again, that, that kind of meant that, that God accepted the rest of the lump, which would be the, re, the, the nation of Israel. And so in verses 17 through, through, the, through 25 here, we need to keep in mind that this portion, again, is the, the, the wild, or the not the wild one, but the, the olive tree is speaking of Israel. It's not speaking of the Lord. It's speaking of Israel. And, and the wild olive tree, or the shoots, the wild olive shoots, is the Gentiles. And the natural thing to do in that day was to cultivate, was to take a cultivated branch, a good branch, and, and graft it into a wild olive tree. And let that, the, the, the root of that wild olive tree produce the fruit out of the good branch. And here it's almost the opposite that is true. Paul knew that, that grafting in a wild olive shoot into a cultivated tree was not the norm. That's why in verse 20, uh, 24, it says that it, it's against nature to do that, but it, 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 it was done. And what he is getting across here was that they were supposed to, by the root, get their nourishment, these wild olive trees or branches, the shoots. It wasn't the other way around. That they should be so indebted to the Jews in the sense because they stumbled. Because they stumbled and were cut off, they were grafted into the tree. And he says, For this I desire, my brethren, that you should not be ignorant of this mystery. Verse 25 in, in the Amplified Less says, Lest you be self-opinionated, wise in your own conceit. I do not want you to miss this hidden truth, mystery. Brethren, a hardening <clears throat> insensibility was temporarily befallen on the part of Israel to last until the full number of the ingathering of the Gentiles has come in. He is talking about the fullness of the Gentiles here. And that, that term, the fullness of the Gentile, speaks about a time when the last Gentile comes to Christ. And when that last Gentile comes to Christ, then I believe that is when the rapture of the church happens and God will begin to deal with his people again. When the fullness of the Gentile is fulfilled. I think oftentimes we can get excited. It's like, man, if we pray for this person, maybe he's the last Gentile. You know, it's like you're hoping and it's like, in Jesus' name. Okay, it's not this one. But that's what the fullness of the Gentiles is. God will begin to deal with the elect once again, the remnant of Israel. So first, verses 26 to 20 or to 32, let me read it through the Amplified. I'm just going to read these things as we close up. Verses 28 says, From the point of view of the gospel, good news, um, they, the Jews, at present are enemies of God, which is for your advantage and benefit. But from the point of view of God's choice of election, 
and divine selection, they are still the beloved, dear to him for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29. For God's gift and his call is irrevocable. He never withdraws them when once they, they are given. And he does not change his mind about those to whom he gives his grace or to whom he sends his call. Verse 30. Just as you were once disobedient and rebellious towards God, but now have obtained his mercy through their disobedience. Verse 31. So they also now are being disobedient when you are receiving mercy that they in turn may one day through the mercy you are enjoying also receive mercy that they may share the mercy which God, which has been shown to you through through you as messengers of the gospel to them for God has consigned penned up all men to disobedience only that he may show have mercy on all alike. Again, God will use this for his glory. His sovereignty, again, is something that we will never understand. I, I don't understand how he consigns or he commits some to disobedient, to be disobedient. I don't understand that. But he uses everything in his sovereignty to bring people to himself, to show mercy when he shouldn't show mercy, but he shows mercy. Guys, your, your life, my life, we don't deserve any of it. None of it. And yet, God has said, those who come to me, I will in no way cast out. And we will be called in the church, his elect. Those whom he has chosen from the foundation of the world, and yet we don't deserve any of it. And somehow he uses it all. And as he finishes up this chapter here, before he gets back into chapter 12, which we will get in a few months, but he says this as he's closing up. And again, it's almost like his mind is so blown away with what he has been sharing about the sovereignty of God. What, what, what it means to the Jew, what it means to those who, who receive it as Gentiles. He says this, Oh, the depths of his riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it should be repaid to him for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's almost like he just gets in a place of worship as, he, as he's contemplating all these things that God had revealed to him as he penned it and he just had to worship. And guys, we may never and we will never, not on this side of heaven, understand the sovereignty of God. We will not know why he chooses some and doesn't choose others or, or why some come and some don't. I, 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 I don't quite comprehend it. My little pea brain up here cannot 
understand. When, when you begin to try to understand, it will blow your mind. But one thing we can do, even if we don't understand it all, is worship. Is worship Him. Because He is the God that knows it all, that sees it all, is all-powerful. And yet, He has chosen you to be one of His, if you are one of His. And if you don't know if you are one of his, then come to know him. Maybe you'll be the last Gentile and we'll be out of here. <laughs> Ask him into your heart right now. And that would be stinking amazing. But if you don't know if you're chosen, because you're sitting there going, well, I don't know if I'm chosen. Well, choose him and then you'll find out if you were or not. It's easy as that. Don't try to this mind trip of saying, oh, I, I got to try to figure it out. You'll never figure it out. You just believe. See, the, the problem that Israel had was unbelief. They tried to figure it out. They tried to do it by the law and they couldn't. And the law was just kept on telling them, you need Jesus. And they didn't. And the Gentiles came in by faith. They received it. They were grafted in by faith. That whole thing about the branches and again, you can, you can argue. People argue all the time about these. I, I don't quite comprehend it. He says, hey, don't get haughty about it. Just because we should never think that we are better than anybody else. Especially the Jews. Those are his people. Hey, we're his church. We're his bride. We get to go to the banqueting table one day. And in that I will rejoice. We will glorify the Lord. Oh, the depths of his riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, guys. Woo! Good blown away by that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, once again, we do glorify you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, your ways are, are beyond us. We can't quite figure them out, Lord. We look at your scriptures and we try to do it some justice, Lord God, but I know that even in this portion of the scripture, there's so much, Lord God, that I couldn't even grasp, let alone teach. And yet, Lord God, I read it and I I, I accept it, Lord, that you've cut some off so others can be put in. And yet those who have been put in, we shouldn't feel that we're all that because we have been put in, because you're able to take us out if you wanted to and put them back in. And so again, Lord God, it just blows our mind how, how all this works. But we're just told, Lord God, that you are unsearchable. There's no way we can figure you out, Lord. <coughs> but we will worship you. We will honor you, Lord. We will lift up the name of Jesus and we will thank you, Lord, for saving us. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, guys.